0: Our second Bible reading for this evening comes from 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of the Lord remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it. For the Lord is with you. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, Did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation.
1: Thanks, Steph. Well, good evening, friends. My name's John. A warm welcome to all of you. Uh you. Uh, Two more quick announcements from me. And firstly, that is um, I'm away on leave starting tomorrow for one week. So if anything, please see Chris, see your elders. Uh, The other thing is on the 23rd of October, Thursday Thursday night, there is going to be a support night to hear from Anna what she's planning to do next year. Keep that night free. We would love for the whole church to be there to support Anna and what she plans to do with uh, ministry for next year. Um, I'm going to get ready. Please turn around, get ready, set up, and I'll call you back in a moment. And grab an outline as well. Okay, we'll, we'll make a start. Now, I'd like to ask, ask you if you had the option, if you had the choice, out of all the countries, out of all the nations, out of all the kingdoms, out of all the empires today and in history, which one would you pick to live in? Which one would you want to belong to? What are your thoughts? Think about that. Which kingdom, which country, which nation, which empire would you like to belong to? Well, if you are a person who wants to live in a place of peace, where you experience peace, you value peace highly, you want to enjoy peace, then perhaps the empire that you choose uh, would be the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, they enjoyed about 200 years of peace. It It was known as the Pax Romana the Roman Empire, perhaps that's you. Or if you want to live in a place where you value the law, you value the justice system, you want a just, fair place, the law is held highly, then if that's you, perhaps you might choose the Chinese Empire. You see, the Chinese Empire, they pioneer a political system and a social structure that lasted for about 2,000 years. Or if you are a person who wants to go on worldwide conquests you know, you see a village and you want to pillage it. You want to do that type of thing, ride on horses and, and stuff like that. Well, that's you. You might choose the Mongolian Empire. The Mongolian Empire, at its peak, this was the largest connecting empire in the history of mankind. It went from Vietnam all the way to Hungary. And so, which country, which nation, which empire would you choose to live in if you had the choice? Even if you got to you know, go back in time, which would you pick? Of course, that's a hard question to answer, isn't it? What are we meant to value? What should we look for in a country, in a nation, in an empire? All I know is Australia. I love Australia and that's all I know. It's great here. But if you had the option, what would you pick? We see, if you are a Jewish person, alive today, or if you're an Israelite back in the Old Testament, the only kingdom that you would want, the only kingdom that you want to live in, is the kingdom of David when David was king and ruler over all Israel. And that's because in that time, it it felt like all of God's promises were coming true. All of God's promises, they were a powerful nation. They had a land to call their own. They had peace from their enemies. They had a king to rule over them. They were blessed by God in great ways. And so if you were a Jew, or if you are a Jew, or an Israelite from the Old Testament, that would be your ideal kingdom. That's the golden era. And so that's the period we'll be looking at today. Remember, we've been going through this series, the Bible in 10 weeks, that's, that's ambitious. We're up to the fifth one today, the big turning point, the fifth turning point, And that's the turning point where we consider the kings over Israel, history's ruler, the king. And so how did Israel end up with having kings? I mean, when we look at the beginning, we'll look at it. But there was no king at the time of Abraham, no king at the time of Isaac and Jacob, by the time of Moses there were no kings. By the time of Joshua there were no kings. So when these, did these kings come about? Well, remember the big unifying, unifying theme of the whole Bible is the theme of the kingdom of God. That is what we're meant to see at every stage of redemption history. What was the kingdom of God? And when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about God's people in God's place under God's rule. What was it like? Okay, so if we go back to the beginning, we'll go through this quickly. Right at the beginning, we had creation. There, the pattern of the kingdom was established. Adam and Eve, in the garden, enjoying perfect relationship with God. And then next, we had the, so that's the pattern of the kingdom. Next, we had the four, remember that? The four, Genesis 3. There, there was no People, no place, and there was only curse and death reigned. Okay, so that was the perished kingdom. And then the next turning point, the next big major turning point, was when God spoke into human history. And that is Genesis 12. Remember the promises to Abraham, the pledge, that was the promise of the kingdom. God promised massive things to Abraham. He'll be a great, he'll have a great name, have many descendants, have a land of his own. He'll be blessed. God spoke into human history and that promise there to Abraham was really the hope for all humanity. And then next, what we saw two weeks ago, we saw the Exodus, that's the story of Moses. Remember that? God del- uh, delivered his people from slavery, And he made that people his own. They they became his treasured possession. And as they escaped Egypt, they were given the laws to live by. So this was the partial kingdom. We're starting to see. They've become a nation now. They've given laws to live by. Today, we'll be looking at this bit. Today, they've entered the land. So that was about 40 years after leaving Egypt. And then about another 350 years after that, that's when they had kings. That's when kings started to rule. And so it's a period of kings in the land that we'll be looking at today. Okay, we all got that? So this is over 10 weeks, we're about halfway now. Now how did we get to this point? Well, how we got to this point was actually not so smooth sailing. You see, the time from Moses, which was when we ended last time, to the time of kings, that's about 400 years. Now, during that period, the people of God were meant to learn that God was their king. They were to live as though God was their king. They had no human king because God was their king. God provided for them. God protected them. And so through the book of Judges, we see how God delivered his people again and again and again. He sent these judges, Samson and Gideon. They delivered the people of God. And so as long as the people of God lived God's way, Trusted God, lived by his rules They were safe God was their king, he was their protector And then now we come To the book of 1 Samuel 1 Samuel things started to change Now the nation of Israel They've become big, they're in the land now They have no king, they haven't had a king For several hundred years But they've become a nation And then they look around them, they see all these other nations They all had kings, they all looked powerful They all had standing armies And so Israel, the nation, they went to Samuel and they said to him, we want a king too. We want a king like all the other nations. They look powerful, we want to be powerful too. They have standing armies, we want to have standing armies as well. And so that was the beginning of the change, the the turning point. And it sounded like quite a legitimate request, right? The people of Israel wanting a king to rule over them. But you see, it was actually an evil request. It was a foolish request. It was a wrong request. Because in the request for a king, like the other kings, they were in fact rejecting God as their king. They were rejecting God for wanting a human king. So what did God do? Well, God gave them the type of king they wanted. God gave them a powerful king, a tall king like the other nations. God gave them a king, a head taller than all the other people, And that was Saul. He became the first king over Israel. He was a head taller. He was just like the other kings of the other nations. Strong, powerful. But of course, if you know the story of Saul, he was a disaster. He was a total disaster. He disobeyed Samuel, disobeyed God, and the kingdom was taken away from him. And so that was the first king. A total disaster. But then the second king was to be different. You see, with the second king of Israel, the second king whom we'll be focusing on tonight, God chose this king. God chose this king. God did not pick the big and strong and powerful. Rather, God chose the youngest of the brothers. And he was just a shepherd out in the sticks looking after the sheep. What does he know about leading a people? What does he know about ruling a land? But God chose him, something totally unexpected. And of course, that person was... David, David. Now, David, we hear, was a man after God's own heart. We've seen this verse before, haven't we? So, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people. Now, often when we read this, week, we think, well, God chose David because he had a good heart. He had a moral heart, a decent heart, and that's why God chose him to be leader. But you see, that's not not in, in fact the way to read this verse. The way we are to read it is like this. The Lord has sought out a man according to his own heart. So what this means is it's not the heart of David that we're looking at. It's the heart of God. It's from God's perspective. So what this is saying is that God chose a man according to God's own heart. It was God's heart that was inclined towards David rather than David having a heart that was inclined towards God. What that means is that David was not chosen because of any inherent goodness in him. It was God's sovereign choice. God chose him. He had a place in God's heart. He had a purpose in God's heart and so God sovereignly chose David. Just like how God chose Abraham. Abraham didn't go to God, hey God choose me, why don't you bless me? Not. It was God who decided and initiated and chose Abraham. And same with Moses. Moses didn't go to God, God, why didn't you choose me? No, it was God who chose him. And likewise with David, God chose him. Now, this is important to see that it was God's initiative. It was God's choice. Because at every major turning point of redemption history, it was always God's initiative. It was God who decides, God who plans, God who purposes, God who chooses. And so God chose David according to God's own heart. And God anointed him, he was anointed, and eventually David became king over Israel. That was the beginning of kingship. He was anointed, he was God's chosen king. Now the word chosen king is the word where we get uh, the word chosen or anointed, same Hebrew word, is where we get the word Messiah, that is the Hebrew word. And it's where we get the Greek word Christ. And so the kings of Israel... Was God's Messiah. They were God's Christ. They were the anointed one. They were the chosen king. Okay, so that's the background to that. And so when David became king, we start the golden era. It was the time of greatness during the history of Israel. It was all good. Remember those promises God made to Abraham? Of land, of offspring, and of blessings? Well, they were seeing that now. They were in the land. They had, they had land to call their own. They were a powerful people now with a powerful king over them. They were blessed by God and it felt like all of God's promises was coming true. It was all true, it was all good, it was the golden era, the time of David. And now we come to our passage today. That's a context, 2 Samuel 7. So let's open to that, 2 Samuel 7. Now this passage is the climax of David's reign. This was the great turning point of redemption history because God speaks into it. And we'll see in this interaction between David and God two things. God speaks one uh, the first thing God says is, what you're enjoying now in the kingdom, it's all good, it feels like all of Abraham's promises are true, but all you're experiencing now is really just a foretaste of the kingdom of God. The promises God made to Abraham a thousand years before David, they're all coming into sharper focus, but it was just a partial kingdom. It was only a foretaste. That's the first thing. The second thing God says and and tells David, he points out what the focus of the kingdom of God will be. The promises of restoration, the promises of a return to Eden, the promises of the reversal of the curse well, all those promises are now bound up in this man and his dynasty. He becomes the focus of the kingdom of God. And so let's go over that. That's the first one. But well, the first one, this was a foretaste of the kingdom of God. You see, things were going really well. There was, there was peace, there was prosperity, they enjoyed all that. And so one night David was thinking, This is not right. He's living in a palace. He's enjoying life, but yet God, his covenant, was still in a tent. So David was thinking, this is not right. And so have a look at verses 1 to 3 with me. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. And so David had an intention of building God a house. That is to build a temple for God, for the Ark of the Covenant. He wants to build um, the house, temple, palace is the same word. And so that all seemed good. Nathan agreed and said, go for it. But then that night, God turns his good intentions on its head. David was not the man to build a temple and that was not yet the time to build the temple. Instead, what God says next in this passage was to show David that there is more to come. You might be enjoying life now. The kingdom might be great now, but there is more to come. There is more blessings. There are greater blessings to come. And so have a look at verses 8 following. As we read this, recall the promises God made to Abraham. And so we read, Now then tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have cut off all your enemies from before you so that's your hint of one of the promises to Abraham they will have peace they will enjoy uh, rest from their enemies and then we go on now I will make your name great like the name of the greatest men of the earth now again that should remind us of the promises made to Abraham God told him that his name will be great David will have such a great name and then we go on verse 10 And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. Now when we read that last bit from verses 10, something there should strike us as strange, as weird. I mean, weren't they already in the land? They were already in the promised land. They were already in the land of Canaan, so they were enjoying all of that already. But look at what God says. God says, I will plant you, I will provide you, I will give you rest. It seems like all that they were enjoying then in that kingdom, when David was king, was not the full purpose of God. It was still looking forward to something It was just a foretaste An anticipation, a shadow Of something greater The rest that they were enjoying from their enemies There's a greater rest There's the ultimate rest And so what they were enjoying then Was just a foretaste Of the ultimate rest, of the ultimate Blessing that God would bestow Upon them. And so when we read that It was great, the, the kingdom of David They had it all It was a wonderful time to live But even as great as it was, God says, that's just a foretaste. And so when we read this now as Christians, it actually leaves us hanging. What are these promises? What will they look like? How will they come about? And so it brings us to that second point. God now gives us a clue on how it will come about. God now speaks of the focus of the kingdom of God. God now makes clear to David, now these are important words, God makes clear to him that all of those promises to Abraham, even in Genesis three, all of those promises are now bound up in your family. Bound up in your dynasty, are bound up in your family line. You see what has come to light, this is a new point in the revelation of God as you read the Bible. This is a new point. What has come to light was that the promises promises of God has become clearer a lot clearer. At this point in redemption history, all of those promises have been narrowed down to being from one of David's offspring. Remember the great promises right from the beginning when we looked at Genesis 3. God promised that one day an offspring of Eve will crush the serpent's head. And so as we, when we read that, we were waiting. When is this serpent crusher going to come along? And then we get to Abraham and we find out that he will be blessed and it will be through his family, that the world will be blessed. And then we're left waiting. When will this offspring come along? And then we get to to, to Moses and the nation of Israel. It will be through this nation. They are God's treasured possession. And so we're left waiting. When will this serpent crusher come along? And now we get to David. We get to David, the king chosen by God, the Messiah of God, the Christ of God, He's chosen and God says it will be from your family. From your family. And so what this tells us is that the hope of humanity, the one who will bring about all of God's promises, will be a king. Will be a king. Will be one from the line of David. And so after we read 2 Samuel 7, the rest of the Old Testament, we're waiting. When will this king come? When will this king come? So you see, this is a major turning point of the Bible. We're now waiting for a king. And so have a look at what God says next. Verses 11. The Lord declares that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Now, remember, David wanted to build a house for God. A house can mean a temple or a palace. But then God, with this play on words, he says, God, I will build a house for you. That is, house can mean a dynasty here. And so God says, I will build a house for you. And then he goes on, When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now notice those promises there. They are massive promises. They're unconditional promises. They're unending promises to David. All of humanity's hope is now bound up in David and his dynasty. All of the hope of the reverse of the curse, the reverse of the fall, are now bound up in David's dynasty. His dynasty will continue. That is God's promise. And it will continue despite him. God will establish his dynasty forever. Now, if you think about those promises there, those are massive. Just think about all the kingdoms and nations and empires of the world. Just consider them. Every single one of them has come to an end. As great as the Romans were, they came to an end. As great as the Persians were, that came to an end. All the great empires come to an end. Kings come and go. Emperors come and go. Empires come and go. The Roman Empire, that ended. The Mongolian Empire, that ended. Genghis Khan and his dynasty, that was short-lived. The British Empire, think about that. In 1922, by 1922, there was one of the most powerful empires in the world, the British Empire. At that time, they, they had influence over one-fifth of the world's population, 20% of the world's population. And they covered an area of almost a quarter of the Earth's landmass. The British Empire, after World War I, before World War II, they were the most powerful empire in the world. Now, almost 100 years later, can we say the same thing about the British Empire? I mean, even Scotland wanted to get up, but they're staying in. Empires come and go. Kings come and go. And we shall know this because kings die. Emperors die. And not only that, when they die, even the great kings, even the great emperors, they're replaced by a a dodgy, silly, stupid son who becomes king and their kingdom is destroyed. But we see here God's promises of fulfilling all the hopes of humanity is now bound up in this family, in David's dynasty. But now God does more than that. He now establishes a special relationship with the king's from the line of David. They will be considered a son of God. You see, the son of God, to be a son of God, is a title. That is to be a king. That is the special relationship that kings from the line of David only have with God. And so to be a son of God is meant to be a functional relationship. That is, they are to be like God and represent God to the world. That was the job of the king. And so we read in verse 14. I will be his father and he will be my son. See, the kings from the line of David are considered a son of God. And that's why at the coronation of a Davidic king, Psalm 2 is read out. And in Psalm 2, it is proclaimed that the king is a son of God. That is the special relationship that they have. And then we read on here. When he does wrong I will punish him with the rod of men With the floggings inflicted by men Kings from David's line when they do wrong they will be punished But yet God says here My love will never be taken away from him As I took it away from Saul whom I removed from before you You see God's love will never be taken away from David's line Never, ever That is massive Quite different to what happened with Saul. His dynasty lasted a total of only one generation. He was the only king. Jonathan did not get to be king. And then we go on here. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established. God promises here he will establish, protect, love, keep David's throne. Now it's interesting to note here that Many kings throughout England in the past, they actually thought that their rule was derived from God. And so King Henry VII, James I of England, they thought they, they had the God-given right to rule. But what we're seeing here is vastly different. God constituted David's reign. God made him king. And God promised him that his kingdom will endure. God never makes any such promise to any other kingdom or empire in the history of mankind. But God made it here to David. And so now we see the promises of God, the kingdom of God, they're all now bound up in David's dynasty. So it's being narrowed in. You see, this is where we're looking for the hope, the hope of humanity, one from David's line. And it is from this line that we'll find a serpent crusher It is from this line we'll find the great hope for all humanity. It is from this line we'll find the king, the Christ, the Messiah, the saviour of the world. You see how this is a massive turning point in the Bible? It makes it so much clearer now who we're looking for. And so what happened to the Davidic dynasty? What happened to David's kingdom? What happened to God's promises? We see when God made these promises... It should perhaps make us think, why would God attach himself, his eternal promises, to frail human beings? Why would God do such a thing? I mean, we all know that even good people are prone to be evil, to be wicked, to be corrupt. You know, just like that old saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Of course God knew that. So why would God attach his promises himself to humans, to a king. Well, you see, that's what happened with David. He was a great king. He was, in fact, the greatest king over Israel. But by the end of his life, it was a total disaster. This guy was uh, one who committed adultery. He murdered someone. He betrayed the trust of his people. He, there was uh, palace intrigue. Even his very own son wanted him dead. The end of his life was a disaster. And that's why it's important to remember God chose him not because he had a good heart. It was God's heart. It was according to God's purposes that God chose him. And so when that happened to David, we're left asking, how would this kingdom endure now? How will the kingdom of David endure if that's what happened to him? And then we look at his son Solomon, wise man. But listen listen to how wise he was. He took on 700 wives, 300 concubines. Does that sound smart to you? I'm not saying that one is enough, but one is complete. 1,000? A bit too much. But anyway, he ended up worshipping the, the idols of his wives. He was a total disaster too. And so when we hear that and when we see that, how will David's kingdom endure? You know, what has happened with the promises of God? And then Solomon's son, he's even worse, Rehoboam. A total disaster. He was this young punk who will not listen to wise advice from older men. That's probably a lesson for us too. And what happened? Well, the kingdom was divided into two. It was split up. Only two generations from David. David's time was the golden era. It was the perfect time to live. Two generations later, ten of the tribes have left. They've become a different kingdom. And so we're left asking, how will David's kingdom endure? Why would God do such a thing, attach himself and his promises to this family? And then by the time we get to 587 BC, remember that. That's a good important date to remember, 587 BC. The time of the Babylonian exile. Actually, all hope was lost now. All hope was gone. There was no unified people. Remember, God's people in God's place under God's rule? No people. They're all scattered. No place. They're not in the land anymore. No blessing anymore. They're under foreign rule. And so again, we're left asking how will David's kingdom endure? And so, did God make a mistake? Did God make a promise too big to keep? Or did God just break his promises? You know, this was, I shouldn't have done that with David. But what does it actually mean for our dynasty to endure forever? Well, it can mean one of two things. It can mean that there will always be a king from the line of David, from generation to generation. There will always be a king sitting on the throne. There will always be a son, always be an heir, no one to assassinate them, no one to to take them over, overpower them. It can mean that, but obviously that was not the case at all. By the time of the Babylonian exile, all hope was lost. All hope was shattered when the last Davidic king was exiled off into a foreign land. That was the end of the Davidic kingdom. But how else do you think this promise could be fulfilled? How else could it be fulfilled that a a king from the line of David would endure forever, would reign forever? Well, the only other way was if there is a king who was to come and that king would actually live on forever and that king would enjoy it forever himself and that king would rule forever. That's the other possibility. See, the first one was if we have a king of every gener- generation, that stopped at the exile. But perhaps the other hope is still possible, that there will come a king who would reign forever. And so what happens on the first page of the New Testament? What do we see? Well, if you look at it, turn to it. Matthew chapter 1, should be easy to find. Very first verse of Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. What do we read? We read this A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Remember, we're waiting for a king. He will be the hope of all humanity. He must be from the line of David, and that's the very first verse we read in Matthew chapter one, verse one. You say, why would Matthew start a book in that way? That's perhaps the most boring way to start any book. Start a book with a list of names. It's like watching a movie but you want to watch all the 20 minutes of credits at the beginning before the movie starts. That's stupid. That's silly. Why would Matthew do that? Well, you see, that was exactly Matthew's intention. You see, they've been waiting for this king for many, many years, for hundreds of years. And so the Israelites, they in fact kept extremely careful and accurate accurate records of all descendants of David. They kept those records for hundreds of years and they kept it in the temple. So if you went to the temple, you could find out who were the descendants of David. And so that's why Joseph had to go to Bethlehem. He was a descendant of David. Today, if anyone today, any Jewish person today claims, I am a son of David, I have a claim to the throne, there, was, there will be no way at all to prove that at all. No way at all to prove that accuracy. No way to prove that certainty. And that's because the temple was destroyed. In 70 AD, all the records of genealogies and uh, ancestry, that was all destroyed. But Jesus came before he was destroyed. The record was still there. And that's why Matthew started his gospel in this way. He's saying to everyone, you know that serpent crusher you've been waiting for? You know that descendant of Abraham you've been waiting for? You know that the one from the nation of Israel you've been waiting for? You know that king from the line of David you've been waiting for? This is the one. This is the serpent crusher. This is the hope for all humanity. He will reign on the throne of his father David. This is the one. And he will bring about the kingdom of God. But not only that, remember what God said to the kings, to David and and his relationship to the kings. They will be seen as a son of God. The kings of Israel, from David's line, are seen as a son of God. What do we have in Jesus? He's not just a son of Abraham, not just a son of David. He's literally the son of God. Isn't that profound? He's literally the son of God. God promised there will be a king who will rule, who will restore humanity, who will establish the kingdom of God. He comes along. He's the son of David. He's in fact literally the son of God as well. He's the one. So that's why Matthew started his book in this way. And so we in, our, in our first reading, we read from Hebrews. He is the son of God. He's the exact representation of his being. You look at Jesus, you see God. And so what do we have here? We have the hope of humanity. That is the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God. But of course, we still must ask, what does this have to do with us today? We live about 2,000 years after Jesus. What does knowing all of this have to do with us today, with you, with me? What do you think? Well, one thing it should do is that it should put our life here now, in Australia, in perspective. Put it in proper, crystal clear perspective, our life now. The good life that we enjoy now, it should put all that into proper perspective. Now, Australia, it's a great place to live. Melbourne's still the most livable city in the world. We live in a great city. We live in a great nation, don't we? Australia is a great place to live. We've got a stable government. We've got peace. We've got prosperity. We've got good healthcare. We've got good schools. We've got good universities. We've got a fair justice system. Life is going well here. For us to think about the kingdom of God, why? Life is good here you know life is good in this land isn't it? this land of opportunity we're told this land of sunshine except if you're in Melbourne four seasons in one day but not today anyway a land of freedom we've got it all we're enjoying God's blessings it's like the kingdom of God here we've got it great and honestly I think we do I'm an Australian citizen and I love Australia. I I, I wouldn't think about exchanging my citizenship for anything else. It is great here. But you see, we're told here that there is only one kingdom that will last the test of time. There is only one kingdom that will endure forever. And shock horror, it's not Australia. It's not Australia. A thousand years from now, Australia might not be Australia anymore. It might become Indonesia or China or Africa or anything else. A thousand years. Do you have any confidence that that there will still be Australians living here? There's no confidence of that at all. But there is a kingdom. There is a kingdom that will stand and endure forever. A thousand years from now, it will be the same. A million years from now, it will be the same. A billion years from now, it will be the same. And this kingdom will never perish. This kingdom will never end. This kingdom will never pass away. The throne of this kingdom will never be overpowered. The throne of this kingdom will never be overtaken. And the king who reigns over this kingdom will never be displaced. I mean, so many kings throughout history, they've all been displaced. The king who reigns over this kingdom will never be assassinated. So many kings throughout history, they were assassinated. The king of this kingdom will never die. All human kings die, but this one won't. Instead, this king sees everything. This king knows everything. This king acts right always. This king will rule with perfect justice. This king will rule with perfect righteousness better than any Chinese imperial system. This king will establish a peace that endures forever better than any Roman Pax Romana. This king calls us and says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come to me. I mean, that was the rest that that David was waiting for. God said to him, I will give you rest. It is not now, it will come. That is the rest that comes from the words of this king. This is a king who will defeat sin and death and evil and the devil. Now, that's better than any Mongolian conquest. This is a king who will love his subjects with perfect compassion perfect mercy, perfect grace, full forgiveness. This is a king who has a love that would lead him as a humble servant to the cross to lay down his life for his subjects. Wouldn't you want to be part of this kingdom? Wouldn't you want to have this as your king, a king to rule, to serve you, to die for you? And he did. He did. And he did. The son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God, the king of kings, the lord of lords. mean, This is the king who reigns forever. He is my king. I would not have it any other way. I'll give up my citizenship for this king. Would you? Is he your king? Let me pray.